Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The cost of living crisis is set to be a defining political theme for 2022, with inflation soaring, energy bills rising, tax rises on the horizon, and households facing increasing financial pressure. The Prime Minister has made political choices that has led us into this place. His government has failed to invest in long-term energy security. His government decided to let gas storages collapse. His government let the energy market run out of control. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your central guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be looking at the trouble ahead for Boris Johnson, starting with the crisis in the energy market, as you heard Labour's deputy leader Angela Rayner discuss at the start. What can the government do to stop bills doubling in the coming months? And along with the sleaze investigations, how much of a threat is the PM facing? Political editor George Parker will discuss, along with chief political correspondent Jim Picard. And later, we'll be checking in on the latest with the spread of Omicron over the festive season and whether the new COVID variant is putting too much pressure on the health service. And what will the next few weeks mean for the NHS? Health editor Sarah Neville and health and science reporter Oliver Barnes will explain. Well, let's start with Boris Johnson. The end of last year gave the Prime Minister some of his most difficult weeks in office, with some Tories predicting that a leadership challenge was on the horizon. That talk may have abated, but it does not mean the PM is out of the woods. The new year has begun with a focus on energy bills, particularly with the price cap set to rise in April to reflect the massive increase in the wholesale price of gas. Urgent talks are underway, with ministers and energy companies trying to figure out exactly what to do. Liberal Democrats, for example, have urged ministers to go for a windfall tax to help keep bills low, as Ed Davey explains. Let's remember these profits were totally unexpected. They're absolutely massive. And it's simply unfair, Liberal Democrats think, that these large oil and gas companies, and indeed some small and medium-sized ones, some of the traders, are making massive profits, while people who are on low incomes may go hungry and cold this winter. Well, Jim Picard, welcome back and a very happy new year. So can you talk us through what is going on with energy bills and what the government is trying to do about it? So the country and the government find themselves in this terrible pickle with energy bills about to go through the roof because the wholesale price of energy, gas in particular, has has risen to an astonishing extent over the, the course of the past year. And temporarily, households and businesses have been protected by this energy price cap, which Theresa May's government introduced a few years ago, which was originally Labour Ed Miliband idea. The problem with the price cap is because it protects you for a period of months, but then every six months it rises or falls, depending on various factors, the biggest factor of which is the wholesale price of gas. That cap has already risen in the autumn and is about to rise massively in April. 
and it could be for many households that they see a rise in their gas bills over the course of 2022 amounting to £700. Now that is obviously a political nightmare coming the way of Boris Johnson's government. People are already complaining about cost of living crisis, they're already complaining about the fact that energy bills went up a couple of months ago, but they haven't seen anything yet. The huge rises coming down the tracks and ministers are locked in talks with the energy industry. They've had intermittent meetings to try and find some way to mitigate this. And they've got all sorts of options that we can we can come back and talk about. But the problem is that none of those options on their own will solve the problem at a stroke. Because if you combine a £700 increase with the number of households in Britain, you get a very crude figure of something close to 20 billion quid being the amount you would need to find to fill this hole. Well, George Parker, this obviously poses an ideological problem for Conservatives here because they don't like to intervene in markets and they certainly don't like pumping £20 billion to prop up temporary energy bills for lots of people. But on the other hand, that's an awful lot of pain coming down the track for households across the country on top of many other factors we'll come on to later. And there's obviously the short term and a longer term thing. There's a longer term thing about energy security, the transition to green and all these subsidies being put onto bills, but an immediate short term thing about what you do to try and get through this particular period. Where do you think the government will end up and how much do you see them sort of intervening? It is an ideological problem. When Ed Miliband first proposed as leader of the opposition an energy price cap, I remember there was a whole lot of people saying this was a quasi-communist intervention in the market. And of course, as Jim mentioned, it was then introduced by Theresa May. But in the end, somebody's got to pay for these rising costs in wholesale gas prices, whether it's the consumer or indeed the companies, many of which have already gone out of business as a result of this and the fact the cap is in place. So the government is in a huge bind on this. They're coming up with all sorts of potential mechanisms, including some kind of government-backed loan scheme where you spread the cost of the price spike over a number of years. Problem is, of course, if prices remain high for a number of years, that's going to become excruciatingly painful for the companies and for the taxpayer. And the simple answer is there's no easy way out of this. If, if gas prices are going to remain high for a long time, unless the government intends to nationalise everyone's energy bills, people are going to have to end up paying for it. And I think in the end, the government's going to have to bite the bullet and say, look, we can't intervene in a decisive way on this. The only thing we can do is to try to target help on the people who need it most. And I think that's what you're hearing from the government over the last few days. The idea of, for example, extending so-called warm homes discounts and some of the other schemes that are aimed at older people and particularly people on low incomes. But in the end, you know, this is a problem which is going to be baked into the system potentially for years to come. And the government can't possibly intervene in a meaningful way to you know address the sort of the wild ride we've had in the energy markets in the last few months at the same time tax rises are being introduced by the government as well costing the typical household about 600 pounds all that coming a few weeks before a crucial set of local elections for Boris Johnson. So it's an economic and political maelstrom coming down the line. Well, Jim, in your conversations, both with government ministries, there's obviously being led by the Department for Business, but the Treasury is involved too. And when they're in conversation with the energy sector, what is the sense? Is this just an acute particular problem now? Or is this something that is going to be baked in? Do you look for a, a temporary one-off thing to just get through the next couple of months and things will settle down? Or is this going to be a much longer term problem that's going to require some kind of reconfiguration of the UK's energy market? So, I mean, the, the roots of that question lie in what, why did the price of wholesale 
gas go through the roof in the first place. And there are some analysts who think that it could be temporary because there are things like, you know, there the global economy, global trade slowed down somewhat because of coronavirus. And therefore, when restrictions were eased, there was there was a burst of activity and therefore people trying to get their hands on gas and a bit of a competition there. There was, there was also some knockout, I think, of some U.S. facilities due to a storm that happened a few months ago. And so there, there are sort of arguments in the industry that things could improve. But the thing that makes it so difficult for policymakers to grapple with is that it's not just a simple case of the price of wholesale gas went from 45p or 50p per therm to something around 10 times that level in the autumn, which did indeed happen, but the price has gyrated wildly. And therefore, they don't have any idea where it'll be in six months' time. But what they are, their, their main priority for now is basically off general announced on, I think, February the 7th, where the cap will go for April. And therefore, very simply in political terms, they have a month to do something about the immediate big jump in gas bills. The other idea that we haven't spoken about because ministers have basically dampened the idea is that you could cut VAT on energy bills. That would have the advantage of being relatively simple and you could do it straight away. The downside with it is that it's not very progressive. And secondly, it's a lot harder to then put VAT back on energy bills further down the line. People would would not like that at all. There's another whole separate thing going on, which we should address as well, which is that quite a few energy companies have gone bust. I think the figure is currently 26 uh, and from a government which encouraged competition in the industry, welcomed the arrival of all these new competitors over recent years. And a separate process is going on whereby Ofgem is trying to basically get banks to take part in a new initiative, which will smooth basically the payments that companies made in order to take over loads of customers from failed companies. By smoothing that over a longer period, you might be able to knock about 70 quid off bills. But that, of course, is only about a tenth of the total rise. Now, George, this is not just about energy bills with this crunch facing Boris Johnson. It goes into many other matters as well. And you and I reported this week that Jacob Rees-Mogg came out in cabinet and said that he was against the big tax rise in national insurance that's due to kicking handling in April as well. And this was all part of a levy that was brought forward to A, a um, help the NHS deal with the backlogs due to the various coronavirus lockdowns, and then B, to deal with the long-term social care issues. And Mr. Mr. Smog, who is leader of the House of Commons and a quite senior and influential Tory, said, well, maybe we should scrap this and look at cutting and making cost efficiencies elsewhere. And the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, came out in public and said this plan won't be changing. Uh, we have a plan. Uh, it is to catch up on, uh, on, on things like the backlog in, uh, in NHS uh, care, which has come about, uh, unfortunately, through coronavirus. And that plan is being put into, into place. Uh, you know, it is also true to say that we want to make sure that we uh, relieve tax pressures uh, on public uh, as and when we can. But there's no real prospect of those pressures being relieved in the near future, is there, George? No, not at all. And when Jacob Rees-Mogg made that intervention in the cabinet that we reported, Rishi Sunak said, well, the Chancellor said, where's the money coming from to replace the £12 billion that the national insurance rise would would generate? And nobody around the cabinet table suggested it should be funded by additional borrowing. Uh, Rishi Sunak's dead set against that, of course, with inflation rising and interest rates starting to rise as well. The potential danger of that is obvious. And then the question is, well, if you're going to try to generate £12 billion from savings, well, where are those savings coming from? And I gather that Mr. Rees-Mogg wasn't able to specify where you would find £12 billion of savings immediately. And Boris Johnson is wedded against going down the route of what he always refers to as the A-word, austerity. 
So the government is stuck, really. I mean, borrowing is extremely high. Taxes are heading for their highest level since 1950. And there's a huge amount of pressure on Rishi Sunak. And he has told cabinet colleagues that any marginal pound that the Treasury manages to rake in between now and the election, he wants to use for pre-election tax cuts. If you start throwing money at the energy crisis at this stage, it probably has limited effect when it comes to the polls in two years' time. So politically and economically, Rishi Sunak is really, really trapped. And then, of course, Jim, we've got to look at the macroeconomic picture as well, that inflation is running pretty high, interest rates are increasing. And when you put all this together, as we said, it's been summed up as a cost of living crisis. And the next few months don't look as if they're going to be particularly easy for Boris Johnson on this front, because he's going to be urged by MPs to do something about it. But there's not a lot prime ministers can do about these macroeconomic trends. But at the same time, Labour is going to be pushing in that direction. And we should mention we heard from Labour this week that Keir Starmer gave a big speech on patriotism and why he loves the Queen, the Commonwealth, football, all that kind of sort of adopting a very Tony Blair-esque approach. But if you take this issue of the economy and cost of living, Labour doesn't seem to have a huge amount to say at the moment, apart from blaming the government for a lot of things that may or may not be in its control. Yeah, I think the attention is going to switch very rapidly from Boris Johnson's political own goals, his self-made gaffes, whether it was Owen Paterson and trying to overturn the standard system or whether it's wallpaper gate or whether it's the number 10 parties. I think those things have reached the public consciousness and the public are very unhappy about them. But I think there's a potential for the public to be even more unhappy when they see these price rises and tax rises hitting them in the wallet, which is the thing most people are more interested in than Westminster bubble. And I think in a way it doesn't matter that Labour doesn't have worked up solutions for, let's say, the rise in energy bills or let's say inflation because it, it's not their job. And unfortunately for the Conservative Party, which is in power, it is their job to deal with these things. And therefore, the public will be entirely judging them on whether they can sort it out or not. If you look at the macroeconomic situation, we had consumer price inflation at 5.1% in November. Economists at Goldman Sachs expect prices by April to be 6.8% higher than they were a year earlier. And that is obviously a huge jump, which, which erodes the value of people's earnings. And then you've, you've got, we've talked about national insurance increases. We've also got income tax thresholds and allowances being frozen for several years, which will bring in several billion pounds to the exchequer. And uh, Chris Charles, our economics editor, has done a very good piece today in the FT saying that Households in Britain are facing a cost of living jump, which is larger than anything seen since the 2008 and 09 financial crisis, and possibly worse than anything seen in a generation. And Chris is not someone who's prone to hyperbole. And finally, George, let's just look at some of the other things facing Boris Johnson. So you mentioned local elections coming later this year. And I think obviously that's going to be a huge moment in terms of how well or badly, should I say, the Conservatives do, because these are midterm local elections when you would normally expect the Tories to do pretty badly. But just how badly will obviously be a bit of a, a bit of a benchmark for Boris Johnson. The other thing, of course, are these two sleaze investigations. So the first one has come to some sort of conclusion this week with Lord 
Geit, who is the independent advisor on ministerial interests. And listeners of the podcast will be aware that Lord Geit has been investigating whether Boris Johnson broke ethics rules on a donation to refurbish the Downing Street flat. And he did a report earlier this year that said he didn't break the rules and that he didn't have knowledge of a donation that came from Lord David Brownlow, who's a Tory donor. But then just before Christmas, it transpired the text messages came out to the Electoral Commission who'd also been investigating this flat refurbishment business that showed the Prime Minister had engaged directly with Lord Brownlow. And Lord Guy had this exchange of letters, which we've been reporting on for some weeks, where and they came out in the public domain on Thursday. And Lord Guy is very unhappy and essentially seemed to say that had he been aware of these text messages between the Prime Minister and the Tory donor, Lord Brownlow, then he may have found him or very likely would have found him guilty of breaking ethics rules. But then Oatley decided he didn't break ethics rules. So we've got that investigation. And then we've got another investigation into Downing Street parties that broke COVID rules by the Whitehall ethics supremo, Sue Gray. So it's going to be a pretty bumpy couple of weeks for Boris Johnson. And as Jim said, Said, the cost of living is probably the thing voters feel the most, but all this is a pretty bad backdrop for the PM to start the year. <laughs> yes, well, it is. And um, you haven't even mentioned Omicron. But in the end, you know, the cost of living thing is the thing that really, you know, that's the thing that really determines elections, isn't it? We all know that um, the economy is always crucial. And for Boris Johnson, it's a toxic combination because to link together his handling of the pandemic and also the question of um, the cost of living crisis They've been linked in the minds of some Conservative MPs, particularly those on the right, that they think there's something a bit unconservative about the way that Boris Johnson in the past has handled the pandemic, his willingness to impose restrictions on the economy, on society, a big state approach. And then that then bleeds into the question of, you know, is there something unconservative about the way Boris Johnson regards the state in terms of the economy, in terms of high spending, high taxes? And he will come under pressure, as we've been discussing earlier, to start cutting taxes to help people out with the cost of living crisis. The government doesn't have any money. That will reinforce the idea that Boris Johnson is in some way unconservative. And if that sort of cycle of sort of distrust of Boris Johnson continues right through to April, when we get this big crunch in cost of living, and then into those crucial elections in May, which for many Tory MPs is a moment when they'll take a big judgment on Boris Johnson's future as Prime Minister. It's a very, very difficult four months for him. But George and Jim, thank you very much. All of the government's immediate prospects, however, will be defined by coronavirus. The third wave continues to lash the country, with the Omicron variant spreading rapidly throughout all parts of the UK. Millions are in isolation and job absences are becoming a significant challenge for the economy. Speaking in the House of Commons this week, the Prime Minister warned that cases are doubling every nine days and 15,000 people are in hospital in England with COVID. But Boris Johnson said further restrictions are not going to be introduced. In response to the latest data, the Cabinet agreed this morning that we should stick with Plan B for another three weeks with a further review before the regulations expire on the 26th of January. People in England should carry on working from home whenever they can, wear face coverings on public transport and in most indoor public places, and take a test before going to high-risk venues or meeting the elderly or vulnerable. Oliver Barnes, welcome back to the podcast and Happy New Year. So let's begin with a slight overview on where Omicron is at in the UK and how it's spreading. How has it developed over the holiday period? Well, the wave has continued to 
intensify in many ways. We've seen extraordinarily high uh, infection rates from the Office for National Statistics infection survey in England in the week running up to the end of the year, so to the 31st of December, one in 15 people had coronavirus, and that's probably all people with the Omicron variant. In London, it was one in 10, and amongst 16 to 24-year-olds, it's one in 10. So we've seen extraordinarily high infection rates, but what the picture's turning into now is a bit of a regional picture. London, which we know was hit first by Omicron, seems to have had kind of improving infection rates for the past week, week and a half and hospitalizations are kind of flatlining and not growing too much where the pressure's now moving to is the north in particular and particular greater manchester as i understand it and we've seen a flurry of nhs trusts i think 24 at the latest count a sixth of the total declare critical incidents and what that um, emblematizes is how the pressure is mounting in parts outside of london Well, Sarah Neville, it's great to have you back on as well. That's really the question now, because essentially the ship has sailed for any further COVID restrictions in England, although we should say Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland do have slightly more onerous restrictions. But across the whole of the UK, the NHS is feeling quite a lot of pressure. And of course, the question is, are parts of it going to collapse, i.e. will patients be turned away from treatment or is that risk overblown? No, I don't think it is overblown. I suppose to put this in context, it's probably worth mentioning that hospitals do relatively frequently declare critical incidents at this time of year. It can happen during a very bad flu season, for example. I remember about four years ago, there was a sort of mass cancellation of non-urgent surgery. This is a period when the NHS does typically come under enormous strain. But I think the problem this year is that there is this huge backlog of care that's built up during the pandemic. And the prospect of some of that non-urgent, you know, we call it non-urgent surgery. Of course, it doesn't feel that way at all if you're the person waiting in pain for a hip replacement, for example. But The prospect that those lists are just going to get longer and longer, which has, of course, very clear political perils for the government, which desperately needs to show that the NHS is improving and is offering a a better service to patients, particularly after that contentious national insurance rise comes in in April. The risk there is that these waiting lists, they're already up to about 5.9 million, 6 million people, that they're going to be even longer by the time of the next general election. And that's what this week, I think, is sort of showing in embryo the massive struggle that this NHS, you know, attenuated through the last two years is going to have keeping up any sort of normal service for Britons. Well, Professor Chris Whitty, who also spoke at a press conference this week about Omicron, said that it was unlike previous strains, but because of the the nature of it spreading so quickly, it could cause real issues for the health service in the coming weeks. I don't think we think that the ICU pressure is going to be what it was in previous, like it was in previous waves. But there is very substantial pressure on the emergency service part, ambulances, A&Es. And my colleagues in the NHS who are in the emergency side are having an extremely difficult time because they've got a a simultaneous uh, wave of people coming in with COVID on top of the usual winter pressures. 
Well, Ollie, could we just compare how England is looking to the other parts of the UK? Because obviously Chris Whitty and Boris Johnson were talking very much about England here, but there is a very stark difference because the Plan B measures we've got in are still relatively relaxed. It's masks in indoor settings, working from home, and you've and there's vaccine certification for mass events. But then in other parts of the UK, mass events simply aren't happening, and table service is happening at hospitality venues, and of course all this comes with an economic and societal cost. But is the COVID picture significantly different in Wales and Scotland compared to say England. We know about Omicron that it's so infectious. And I think this is what's meant that despite the fact that Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland all moved fairly early, not just to implement what we call the Plan B measures, but also to implement a kind of suite of other measures to limit social mixing and household mixing and mixing in restaurants. Despite that, their picture isn't actually that much different to ours. Likewise, all three other uh, home nations have seen record-breaking infection rates. They're seeing hospitals come under strain. I think the one distinction which has unfolded and why actually England doesn't look in such a bad position is because when the government started to bring out this kind of fear factor messaging about Omicron, a lot of people rode in their behaviour despite not a huge number of extra restrictions being implemented. You know, I was in London over Christmas and New Year. The streets were fairly quiet. So even though those restrictions aren't in place, people's behavioural caution has started to limit some of the spread and some of the uh, the infection rates in England. And that's the kind of thing that the government in England is banking on, despite the fact they haven't gone as far to bring in legal limits on mixing as, as the other home nations have. Now, Sarah, how is the booster campaign looking? Because as we've talked about before on the podcast, the government put all its eggs in this basket, really, which was to say the boosters will create that extra level of immunity. And all the evidence has suggested that they are doing that and that they are helping to stop serious illness. You know, during the Christmas period, uh, a significant part of my family caught Omicron and nobody has been seriously ill of all different ages because of all being boosted. But there's been some concern in Whitehall that those levels of jabs are dropping off slightly. Is that a problem? And what can really be done about it? The numbers are hugely impressive for the age groups at greatest risk of a bad outcome from COVID. I think the latest figures NHS England put out this week, they tend to issue very bullish, uh, almost daily bulletins at the moment. And I think the latest figure was that over 90% of over 50s have been boosted. So that's fabulous. And I think that's what's left us as a country in a far better position, for example, than the United States to weather this wave. I think the slightly ominous concern is how quickly that booster itself is going to start waning. Even by around 10 weeks after receiving it, the effect isn't as great against Omicron, uh, against any variant of COVID. So I think the hope is that the protection will allow us to ride out the peak of Omicron and that if we assume, uh, it's a big assumption, but I think many people hope that by February the picture will be looking better, that we'll be you know, significantly beyond the peak of cases. But then I think there are huge questions for the health service, for the government, about how often 
we boost people. Uh, in Israel, uh, they're already into a, a fairly routine fourth dose now for over 60s in, at least. Um, so the question is, for how long will the NHS have to bend itself to being a sort of COVID vaccination service? Well, Ollie, this does raise the question of where does this go in terms of a constant cycle of vaccinations? Because I think it was uh, Rishi Sunak who said the chance that it would be about five billion pounds a year. Israel is already looking at fourth vaccinations. What kind of cycle is this going to fall into, in your view? Is it going to be a case of, you know, annual vaccinations? When do we get to that point? Or, you know, is it going to be something every four months? The the immunity is waning very, very quickly. And of course, people don't want to get to a situation where it is spreading so rapidly. And this also leads to the question, when do you see it becoming endemic? One thing that puts the UK in good stead is we have a very large number of doses under order. We have over 100 million doses combined of Pfizer and Moderna that should be arriving throughout the next 12 months. And I think that order was made with an eye to fourth doses. The reason we don't need to act quite as quickly as somewhere like Israel on fourth doses is in a strange kind of virtue of our booster program taking a while to to get off the ground in a way. Because Israel went earlier, they've waned earlier, so they've had to act early on forced doses. We went a bit slower. And strangely, a number of uh, health officials have said to me, we could kind of be reaching peak immunity uh, amongst the most vulnerable at almost the perfect point over this winter to combat the Omicron wave. I think the expectation is that with vulnerable groups, much like the flu vaccination, there probably will be boosters ongoing. Exactly the time period that's split over in the long term, whether that's kind of apportioned over six months, 12 months, 24 months, who knows? One thing that's noted, though, is that Andy Pollard, who's the head of the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation and was also behind the Oxford vaccine, said it's basically non-viable to keep on giving people vaccines every six months for the foreseeable future. So in some ways, when we fall into that endemic state, whenever it does come at some point this year or next year, there's going to have to be a kind of discussion had, and I'm sure it's already ongoing, about how you know such a, a vaccine programme is kind of baked into the NHS to the normal functionings of the NHS. The NHS is taking extraordinary measures to deliver these doses. And when the government turns its mind to reducing the backlog, you can't continue to take those extraordinary measures to deliver a vaccine programme. So there'll have to be some kind of compromise in the middle about how that's how that's rolled out in the future. Well, that compromise and the idea of not having to sort of jump at every particular twist and turn was highlighted in the House of Commons this week, surprisingly, by the former Prime Minister, Theresa May, who came out, I believe, against vaccine certification. And in a debate about COVID, she praised Boris Johnson for not introducing those extra measures, and but also warned that she felt the government needs to reach a level of stability when it came to new variants. It is not in the national interest to partially or wholly shut down sectors of our economy every time we see a new variant. So will my right honourable friend take this opportunity to inform the House as to whether and how the government will be changing its approach when new variants arrive? Well, finally, so what do you make of that approach by Theresa May, which, as you could tell by the here he is in the background, is shared by many other Conservative MPs? Because obviously we don't know what's going to come 
in terms of variants. But, you know, the way that we've handled Omicron versus Delta and Alpha when they emerge has been very different. And that's obviously because we've got the vaccines, we've got that immunity within the population. Do you think she's right in terms of where COVID goes next, that if there are further variants, they can be much more manageable? Or is it something we simply just don't know? At the moment, we don't know, but there are some reasonably promising signs that it's actually highly unlikely that certainly COVID-19 is going to mutate in a way that's going to put it entirely beyond the reach of vaccines. I think there's all sorts of reasons to do with the actual structure of that virus that means that it's hard for it to maintain its transmissibility if it changes so far in its structures that it can completely evade vaccines. So I think we can take some comfort, despite the horrendous shock of Omicron that we've all been living through since late November, we we can take some comfort that even the current crop of vaccines will remain effective. And of course, there's an enormous amount of work going on now all over the world into the creation of these so-called polyvalent vaccines. This is like a sort of universal coronavirus vaccine that will work against any strain, not only any strain of COVID-19, but potentially against any future coronavirus. And this, I think, is the holy grail. I think it's what people like Chris Whitty and his counterparts around the world do feel is ultimately going to be what allows the world finally to get out from under the shadow of this constant fear of new variants, new coronaviruses, is the notion that we will all be able to protect ourselves against anything that, you know, the the, the animal world, if you like, may, may throw at us in terms of those viruses that cross from the animal into the, the, the human population. Now, this is still a way off. I think we're probably talking more like 2025 or 2026 before a highly effective polyvalent vaccine may be generally available. But this I think is probably the single most hopeful development on the the horizon as we enter yet another year of living with this virus. With Sarah and Oliver, thank you very much for joining us. And that's a wrap for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then you could subscribe. You can find it through all the usual channels where you get your podcast to receive episodes every Saturday morning. We also love positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Harry Shannon. And the sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. Until next time, thank you for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.